These are the true stories that made it wild. Okay, okay. I know that opening was a little bit ominous, but with good reason. So I want to give you guys a little detail on this first episode and how this podcast came about. So I was born in the Southwest. I've been an avid amateur history buff all my life. I've done literally thousands of hours researching and looking for places like old mining camps, forts, past battlefields, even old creepy graveyards. I pack up my kids in my 4x4. We hunt these places down and we actually stand in the places that we've read about. Whether it was a battle that happened there or some type of gunfight. And it's almost like you come face to face with the ghosts of the past. And it's pretty cool to be able to stand there and know that something happened there 140, 150, 160 or more years ago. So it's a great feeling. And I hope that you will be able to get a kick out of some of these stories like I really have. I've dug up firsthand accounts of some of the craziest stories you'll ever hear. There's stories of giants, of lost treasure, deadly encounters, huge bear fights in California. Every episode will start out with some old advertisement from the 1800s that are amusing. And then I'm going to go through and probably go over some newspaper headlines from the area that we're going to get our main story from. And then we're going to move into a couple main stories where we really dig into... uh, Uh, something a little bit deeper. Basically, I'm getting stories anything west of Missouri in the 1800s. Back then, you're going to find that you carried 911 on your hip because no one was going to come rescue you if you got in trouble. You had to rescue yourself. So whether you're a big-time history buff, or maybe you just love crazy stories, or you want to find out a little bit about the history of the town or the state or the city that you're living in, I hope this podcast will be one that you'll turn to to be entertained wowed, amazed, and set you on adventures in your life. If you really like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to my podcast. I'll be bringing a new adventure every week, and we're going to explore now the stories that made the West wild. Okay, since I don't have any real advertisers on this show as of yet, I'm going to be bringing you advertisements from, let's see, about 1860s. Our first one, this is something we can all use, fat is folly when it can be reduced easily, conveniently, and best of all, safely by the use of La Pearl Obesity Soap. This obesity soap, used like an ordinary soap, positively reduces fat without dieting or gymnastics. Absolutely harmless, never fails to reduce flesh when directions are followed. Send for the book of testimonials. Box of two cakes sent prepaid on receipt of $2. Northwood Chemical Company, St. James Building, New York. Okay, I'll take, uh, for two bucks, I'll take two cakes of that. That's for sure. Anyway, that's what was going on. You could just soap fat away in the 1800s. Amazing we lost that technology. Now we just need to find the recipe for it. You'd be richer than uh, Bill Gates and Elon Musk, maybe even uh, combined with that kind of soap. I'm going to try to find that recipe. Another great ad from about 1870s. Do you have a sleepless baby? Use Laudum. It also aids in pain relief, yellow fever, cardiac disease, colds, dysentery, and excessive secretions. Sold at Sears Roebuck. Wow, they've come a long way. I think that would cure just about anything because you're passed out. Can you imagine giving that to your baby? That's insane. It definitely put those babies to sleep. I'm sure moms of the day, a little for the baby, 
a little for me, a sip for the baby, a little sip for me. So I think mama and baby were probably sleeping well after using that. All right, for headlines of the day, we are taking it from the Arizonan, which is a Tucson newspaper. And we are looking at Sunday, March 28th, 1869. Considerable excitement was occasioned here on Friday last by a party of some eight or ten Indians having come within three miles of the town and attacked a Mexican who had left town on horseback half an hour previous. Though two bullets passed through his clothes, escaped with but a slight scratch and returned to town. The alarm was immediately sounded when about 60 mounted citizens together with a company of cavalry started in pursuit of the Apaches. These cunning individuals, however, had their plans arranged. Upon seeing the intended victim beyond their reach, albeit they pursued him within a mile and a half of the town, and knowing that his report would be followed by immediate pursuit, they immediately fled and succeeded in reaching the mountains before their pursuers had gotten upon their tracks. As I told you, it's the Wild West, and some weird things happen out there. How's this for the headline? Same newspaper. Anne Swan the nine-foot giantess in the yellow dress and black velvet cloak swept majestically down Broadway yesterday, looking in at the second-story windows. She is as graceful as a swan and seems to enjoy good health, notwithstanding the partial roasting she got at Barnum's Museum. She went to get her picture taken. Of course, it was not full length. So if you get a chance, here's your homework. Google Anne Swan, Barnum's Museum. You'll learn something about her. And one thing I'm going to look at in future podcasts are the mentions of giants. For some strange, odd reason, reading through some of these books, quite a few accounts of giant skeletons or giants being spotted. So stay tuned over the next few episodes, and I will be looking into giants one of these days. So what I wanted to do on this first podcast to kick things off is to give you a couple short stories. A couple of these stories are from a gentleman named George Weeks. Now, he was a journalist, mainly in San Francisco, but he spent time in Arizona, also in San Bernardino, L.A. area, and was all over the West Coast. He worked as an editor and a copyright from about the 1860s in the West, Tired, I believe it was in the 19s, 1915, 1920, somewhere in there. But what he does is he really brings to life in his books what he saw during that time. Toward the end of it, he gives a lot of different short stories that he just found interesting in his time working as an editor and as a journalist in the Western Frontier. So what I thought I would do is kind of read through some of these, and it'll give you an idea and just a hint of some of the types of things we're going to be covering in this podcast and stories. So hopefully this will wet your whistle a little bit and want to encourage you to listen in as we dive deeper into longer stories in the future podcasts. Here's a great example of frontier justice from our friend George. Still 1860s, 70s, somewhere in there. One of the most dramatic incidences of my editorial experience occurred just at the close of an excursion with a few other small-town newspaper men and our wives to the town of Yuma, Arizona, a frontier place in all that the word comprehends. At the time of our arrival, a man chanced to be on trial for having shot and killed a woman in the presence of her little ones and in the absence of her husband as a result of a dispute about a squatter's title to a 
track of land. Although the crime had been deliberate and cold-blooded in the extreme, and the evidence did not seem to present even a shadow of a doubt or an excuse in defense, the jury nevertheless found him guilty of a degree of murder which only entailed life imprisonment instead of the hanging that was expected by all, including the visitors. Sentence was pronounced on the morning of the day following the delivery of the verdict. Two officers at once handcuffed the prisoner between them and started out on foot from the courthouse on one side of the town to the penitentiary on the other, less than a quarter mile apart. The editorial visitors had gathered in a group on a corner which must be passed, while on the opposite and distant corner, the street being exceptionally wide, the roomy porch of a large mercantile establishment was crowded exclusively with men. Not a sound was heard from anyone as the trio marched grimly and quickly down the center of the broad thoroughfare. But just as they reached a point midway between the local spectators and the visitors, a sharp crack of the rifle was heard, coming apparently from the gathering in front of the store, though not accompanied by smoke. If fired from that point, a smokeless cartridge must have been used. The murderer fell dead with a well-aimed bullet through his heart. The officers released the handcuffs and rushed over to the crowd from which the shot apparently came, and which stood silently awaiting events, no one moving. But though they searched every man, including the husband and the father of the murdered woman, no sign of a weapon could be found on anyone. The coroner's jury found that the deceased met death at the hands of some person unknown. This incident concluded our three days festivities and an enjoyable time was had by all, including the friends of the murdered woman, though not by the cowardly jury. We returned to our homes the next day with a fresh example of undiluted frontier justice in our memories and with our hearty approval. Among my most interesting acquaintances in San Bernardino was good old Dr. Stout. Sixty years ago, he became interested in electric phenomenon. He studied and experimented and finally announced that he believed communication was possible through either air or earth without the medium of wires. His wife charged him with wasting their substance in an insane experiment. A sheriff's jury of experts was summoned, including the most learned men of the town, such as editors, lawyers, preachers, doctors, and so on. They listened with gravity as the doctor expounded his ideas, and with one accord and no delay, they pronounced him unmistakably crazy. Whereupon, he was sent to the insane asylum and remained there until after his wife's death. Then he returned without interference and resumed his experience. At that time, now over 50 years ago, I made his acquaintance and was fond of listening to his theories and explanations as he was having an attentive listener. But of course, along with the other wise men, I knew that he was a lunatic. Who but an insane man could for a moment believe it possible to send communications by the means of electricity and without connecting wires? We published articles written by him, even though all of us knew he was crazy. Are you tired of your dining room table getting scuffed up? Well, how about a new product by The Star? 
It's an asbestos pad for dining tables. The original and patented dining table pad. Not an imitation. The best pad manufactured. Made of a special grade of asbestos of sufficient thickness and weight to assure protection from damage by heat and moisture. Covered with double-faced cotton flannel to make it soft and noiseless. Ask your dealer to show you the star pad. All pads and mats bear our trademark. Star. Right for the descriptive booklet made by L.W. Kearney and Company, 253 West 62nd Street, Chicago, Illinois. There you go. Go out and get your asbestos pad and have it sitting around. And not only that, eat off it. This next story I titled, One Lucky Son of a... Ah, never mind. Never mind. Name's not important. What is, is the story. And this story took place somewhere in the 1870s. Tom Lee was a confirmed desert rat. He spent years traveling up and down the barren wilderness with a long-eared burden bearer, basically a donkey. Every few months, he came to San Bernardino with a new lot of specimens and jubilantly told of his fresh prospects of striking it rich within a short time and of becoming wealthy. But when the opportunity to realize his ultimate ambition at length presented itself, He did not have the gumption enough to take advantage thereof, and presumably died poor and neglected. Neither did anyone know of the time, place, or manner of his passing with any certainty. Over on the desert across the range from San Bernardino, Lee once located a quicksilver or cinnabar mine. This was the crowning achievement of his life. He had gold mines here and there, silver mines hither and yonder, copper mines in between, and all sorts of mines, from asbestos to zinc. He spent his time going from one to the other, doing the assessment work, and locating still more claims, but never was Lee tired of talking about his wonderful quicksilver mine and of exhibiting the really beautiful colored samples of rich ore. It was a world beater, or was to become such. This was to make him wealthier than any other man on the coast, and he talked so much about it that it became a byword in the entire community. When my dead-broke beekeeper companion went over to the desert with a pick and shovel and burrow because there was no other place to go that offered any prospect of betterment, about the same time I took the freight train to San Francisco, he chanced one day to pitch camp near the headquarters of a cattle ranch close to the sinks of the Mojave, where the waters of that river, having their source in the melting snows of the lofty mountains close by, lose themselves in the desert sands. As was natural, he drifted to the bunkhouse late in the afternoon and was invited to supper. During the evening, while talking about his new prospecting, one of the cowboys asked him, Why don't you go up into the hills and see old Tom Lee's quicksilver mine? He thinks he's got a big bonanza there, and you might locate an extension. This seemed like a good idea, and after obtaining explicit directions as to the route to follow, he led his pack burrow into the hills the next day and soon found the dump of the mine, which was extensive enough to attract attention from a considerable distance. The shack was deserted and there were no indications of recent human occupancy. The prospector lighted a candle and explored the tunnel throughout its entire 400 feet in length. 
Single-handedly and alone, Tom had driven that tunnel, which was large enough to permit a man to walk upright and push a wheelbarrow in front of him. At the heading, he found the tools that had been used in the excavation. In accordance with Miner's law, that meant Lee intended to return, which, however, he never did. There was a knife blade ledge or streak of colored cinnabar ore showing here and there throughout the entire length of the excavation, but never in sufficient a quantity to be worthwhile stopping and digging. After giving the tunnel a thorough examination, Waterman concluded the vein was not worthy of following. He returned to the dump and stood for a while looking casually at the vast accumulation of waste rock that had been so laboriously extracted and wheelbarrowed out. Something about it finally attracted his attention. It was decidedly different in the appearance from the country rock. After picking up and examining a number of fragments, he concluded that it might be worthwhile to take a chance and invest a few dollars in having some specimens assayed. The fact that they were different was his motive, as he had not the slightest idea of the actual nature of the rock. A couple of years or less later, I was in San Bernardino and chanced to see the great desert freight wagons coming into town, each drawn by six mules, which tugged as though pulling a heavy load through no cargo of any kind could be seen projecting above the high sideboards of the vehicle. They halted in front of the express office. I called to the boss, my old bee herder acquaintance, who was sitting on the driver's seat by the side of the superintendent of the motive power. In response to my salutation and query as to the character of the cargo, he replied, climb up on the hub and take a look. I did so. The entire floor of the wagon was covered with great oblong bars of pure silver, as close together as they could be packed, and so too was the floor of the second wagon. It had all come from the lost quicksilver mine of the desert rat Tom Lee. The worthless waste dump was found to be composed of the richest kind of silver ore, but of a character unknown in that part of the state, and hence not having received attention from its discoverer, who was too busy following the crimson cinnabar thread to pay attention to the less picturesque deposits. This dump had been working at the outset, the rock being shipped to a smelting plant. I was told that it had returned a fabulous amount, more than enough to defray the cost of the works required to handle the ore. The vein itself proved equally rich with the waste on the dump, if not more so. The fortunate discoverer told me that what I was looking at was only a portion of the output of the mine. I do not want every Tom, Dick, and Harry in San Bernardino to know my business, so I send shipments like this from three or four different, widely separated points on the railroad. Not so many years after this fortunate discovery, Waterman was ranked in the millionaire class, and when the next state election was held, he was chosen governor by an overwhelming majority. Now, when I went on Wikipedia, here's what it said about Waterman. It says, in 1873, Waterman returned to California and became a machinery salesman in Redwood City, California. In 1874, he moved to San Bernardino, California. He operated the Stonewall Jackson Mine, which netted him $500 a day. In 1880, while residing in San Bernardino, 
Waterman discovered a silver mine with John Porter a few miles north of Barstow, California, then called Grapevine. In 1881, he formed a mining partnership with John Porter called Waterman and Porter, with three-fourths of the interest owned by Waterman. A stamp mill settlement about four miles away was named Waterman. The South Pacific Railroad came through Waterman in 1882, and 100 men were employed at the mill and the mine. The mine produced 40,000 tons of ore worth $1.7 million before it closed in 1887 after silver prices declined. In 1886, he purchased Rancho Cucamonga, including California's Stonewall Gold Mine. On the Cuyamaca Ranch, he raised cattle and helped build San Diego, Cuyamaca, and the Eastern Railroad. He was elected lieutenant governor in 1886 as a Republican and became governor in 1887 upon the death of Governor Washington Bartlett. In 1886 election was the first split between two posts in California history. As governor, the Waterman Rifles Militia was authorized for San Bernardino, California, named in his honor since he was a resident of the city prior to the election. In 1889, possibly at Waterman's urging, the 300-acre Harlem Tract in Patton, California, was chosen for the first Southern California Insane Asylum. It opened in 1893 and would become Patton State Hospital in the Highland area of San Bernardino. He served as lieutenant governor and governor. His administration suffered from his lack of elected office and poor advisory support. He strongly supported the Congressional Resolution creating Yosemite National Park. The question whether to divide California was a major issue in his term. His nickname was Old Honesty. He would not tolerate drunkenness, overspending, nor dishonesty, and vowed to run the state as a business. He chastised the legislature for having 228 clerks when only 35 were authorized. Though he served out the remainder of his term, his poor health caused him not to seek re-election. He moved to San Diego, where he is buried in Mount Hope Cemetery. In 1891, he purchased for $17,000 a Queen Anne-style house built in 1889, known as the Long Waterman Mansion, now located at 2408 First Avenue in San Diego, California. We're going to close out this very first podcast with two quick stories that I hope you'll find amusing. And it really speaks to the uniqueness of the things that happened in the Wild West. Every old timer in the Southwest knows the story of the Lost Gunsight Mine. Its history is brief enough. It's in the Death Valley region. All that is known is this. The sole survivor of a party of lost immigrants was wandering on foot and made camp one night close to the base of a ledge of considerable height. He built a fire against the rock, and in the morning, while stirring the ashes to see if any coals were alive, found a small cake of molten metal plainly extracted from the ledge by the blaze of the previous night. 
On scraping this with his knife, he concluded that it was lead. It chanced that he had lost one of the sights from his old Jaeger rifle. He took some of the molten metal and made a new gun sight. When at length he left and reached some settlements, he asked a gunsmith whose acquaintance I had early made to replace the crude device, the one that he made, with a more suitable one, at the same time relating the history of the makeshift lead appliance. The gunsmith examined and tested the handmade sight, and he said to the man, Lead? What are you talking about? This is not lead, it's pure silver. Then and there began the search for the lost gunsight mine, and although three quarters of a century at least have elapsed, it has never yet been found, and is out there yet, waiting for some lucky desert rat, or more likely a tenderfoot, to find it. It would be a tenderfoot's luck. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening.